how'd you line up today? Charlie Neal opens up at shortstop, and Jim Gilliam at second base. Duke Snyder batting third in center field. Huey Reese will be at third base. Randy Jackson, it's conceivable, could have played today. However, he twisted his knee slightly yesterday, and they're always afraid that he might seriously injure it. So they'll give him a day off. However, he could appear as a pinch hitter. Joining us from his home in Athens, Georgia, is Randy Jackson, better known as Handsome Ransom. He is best known for replacing none other than Jackie Robinson at third base back in 1956 and was the last Brooklyn Dodger to hit a home run. He just wrote about his amazing life with our friend Galen White in the new book, Handsome Ransom Jackson, Accidental Big Leaguer. Great to have you with us, Ransom. And I'm sure everybody's first question is about your nickname. How did that come about? As far as we can track it down, of course, back in our day, uh, about day, everybody had to have a nickname. You had to be shorty or, or whatever. And uh, I think it was a TV announcer, Jack Brickhouse. I don't know if you ever heard of Jack Brickhouse, but he was one of the famous. Oh, yeah. He came up with that name, and just all of a sudden it appeared, probably probably in my first year. So what do you do? You don't go up to a guy and say, don't ever say that again. <laughs> Particularly when you talk to a guy like Jack Brickhouse. I said, you know, just so what? You know, just, so it just carried along, and, I, and I've had it for quite a long time. It's better than some other ones. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, before we get to your days with the Dodgers, you've lived this life that I think makes Forrest Gump jealous. You cross paths with everybody from Ty Cobb and Ed Sullivan to Mickey Mantle and Dwight Eisenhower. I want to start from the beginning. You grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. I myself spent a couple of years there. Your dad was friends with Yankees Hall of Famer Bill Dickey. Tell us what happened the night Dickey came to your house for dinner. Frankly, I never heard of Bill Dickey. My, my dad told, told me about him. Uh, I didn't know back when I was growing up, I couldn't tell you the name of any baseball player because I didn't follow it. And he came over for dinner, and he, he brought me a, a deer's head. Uh, he was uh, uh, quite a hunter. And then he bought me a ball signed by all the 1939 Yankees. And I said, thank you, Mr. Dickey. Appreciate that. And the next day, I was out playing catch with him. I don't know what it would be worth today, but uh, and I don't remember who, who was on there, but I, I guess I could research it and find out there were pretty, some pretty good names on there. If I remember correctly, in the book, one of the names was a guy named Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember him. <laughs> but, I, you know, what, what did I know back then? Yeah. Well, you didn't play high school baseball or football, but you ended up playing in the major leagues, and also you end up, playing in back-to-back Cotton Bowls, one season at the University of Texas, the other at TCU. How did you end up playing football at TCU with no high school football experience? Well, I was in the Navy program. They were training us to be officers and a gentleman, and they were paying us $50 a month, and we wore bell bottoms. If you flunk one course, and they gave you all the hard courses, including how to blow up a battleship for you know 50 miles away. And uh, I was just standing out there one day about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We were through school, and Coach Dutch Meyer walks up to me. Of course, I didn't even know, I know who he was, but he says, Son, we, we need some bodies. And I said, Coach, I've never played it. We didn't have high school football. And he said, well, I don't care. You know, I just I respect that, but we just need, need some people out there. We don't have very many. And so I said, well, okay. So I went out there first day and gave me a uniform and said, what? and this was uh, incidental leather helmets. And he said, uh, what did you play in high school? I said, I didn't play. And he said, uh, 
well, I'm, I'll make you a lineman. And I said, well, you know, what do I know? Six foot one, 165 pounds. That's about the size of a lineman. I went over there, and these guys were hitting heads. And uh, I looked over there at the backfield guys, and they were throwing the ball around. So I walked over to Coach Byron. I said, Coach, I'm not a lineman. I'm a backfield guy. So he put me, made me uh, a halfback, second-string punter, and we had about 15 guys who played, and we won the Southwest Conference. That's amazing. Just 15 guys. How did, how did, was that normal back in that time, or was oh, that pretty no, unique? No, 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 no. We just see that the, the uh, TCU had, only had about 1,600 students, and then we had uh, 700 Navy guys, and that was it. So where do you, where do you get the bodies there? We won, won the uh, Southwest Conference and went to Cotton Bowl and played Oklahoma, Oklahoma A&M, who had three All-Americans, and they nosed us out 44 to nothing. <laughs> Well, after TC, you go to Texas, you end up playing football and baseball with a UT and NFL legend, Hall of Famer Bobby Lane, one of the great characters in all of football history. You got to have a story or two for me with Bobby Lane. They closed the midshipman school at TCU. They sent us down to Texas and we were still trained to be officers and gentlemen. And Coach Dana X. Bible, who is in the Hall of Fame, too, he called me over to his office. He said, son, uh, he was about five foot six, but you stood at attention in front of him. And he said, we need you. Uh, I said, Coach, I'd get up at 530, and if I flunk one course, I'd go out to see. He said, I saw you play for TCU. I need you. He said, we got a quarterback coming in by the name of Bobby Lane. And, of course, I never had heard of Bobby Lane. But I went out. And we won the Southwest Conference again two straight years in a row, which you normally can't do because you're at two different teams. But Bobby, Friday nights were his, was his fun nights, Friday night before a, Saturday, before a Saturday afternoon game. I didn't keep track of what time he came in, but it wasn't the average time. It was, uh, you know, I expect the sun was coming up. But uh, Bobby, he just liked having fun. But then he'd go out there on Saturday afternoon. He, he had a fantastic arm and the Football was like catching a pillow. You couldn't drop it. He played two years of, of baseball with me. He had 28-0. I think it was his record in baseball. So he was pretty good in both sports. But a great guy, but a real character. He enjoyed the good life, let's say. Yeah, he liked to party a little bit, didn't oh, he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you, uh, you've you said about the only pro baseball player you'd heard of before you signed a pro contract. You're talking about that a little bit earlier was Babe Ruth. Is that is that right? Thinking back, as you know, everybody had heard of Babe Ruth back then, whether it was a candy bar or was a person. But they had a baseball team there called the Little Rock Travelers. We'd go out to the game occasionally, but I I could not tell you the name of a, of a player. It was just something to do and to spend fifteen cents to get into the game. I just didn't didn't follow football, baseball. Didn't follow anything growing up. It was just go out in the side yard or the, the schoolyard and play and have fun, pass the time away. That's kind of unusual because kids nowadays, they set out to be major league ball players or they set out set out to be pro ball players and never in my, entered my mind ever, ever to become a major league ball player. And I just did it one day because I was out of college and I had to do something. Sounds kind of silly, but that's the way it worked. Well, you kept crossing paths with all these crazy legends. You play semi-pro baseball just down the road here in Conroe. It's basically a suburb now of Houston. Back then, it was probably more of a small town. The team was made up of the best players from the Texas colleges. And 
you got to tell us, you played with Ty Cobb as your manager for that team. What was that like? Well, that's not the real Ty Cobb. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was. It was Ty Cobb from uh, from Texas. It wasn't the real Ty Cobb oh, from not Georgia. The re- that wasn't the real one. That wasn't the real no, guy. No, 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 no. That no, would have no, been no. interesting, though. I'm sure you, you that go to – That would have, but we <laughs> – we played all all summer long. I think they gave us two hundred and fifty dollars, which was a lot of money back in those days. We did not lose a single game all summer long. Of course, the, the other towns they had teams, but they were just pickup teams. You know, guy was a fireman all day, but he'd come out and play a game that night with his team. But we had seven or eight guys from the Southwest Conference. Most all of them made all conference, and so you throw throw us against them, and they didn't have a chance. So we won every game we played all summer long. In the minor leagues, you played against Chuck Connors, who who later starred in the television classic The Rifleman. Uh-huh. What are your mem- memories of playing against Connors? Let's see. I played against him in 1950. He was, he was playing for Rochester, I believe, and I was playing for Springfield, Massachusetts. That winter, the general manager called me and said, what do you think of uh, the first baseman? No, it's Montreal. For Montreal, I said, oh, Chuck Connors? And he said, yes. Uh, I said, well, I think he's a good, pretty good ball player. I played against him quite a few games, and, he did, and I thought he did good. Well, about a week later, they bought him. Of course, I can't say they did it because of me, but I guess they were they were waiting for my input because I, I played against him. He was good. He was tall. He was 6'6", and the other guy was Fondy. I could tell right away that Chuck was kind of outgoing. It was amazing the things he would do. He would recite Casey at the bat as long as you had at least two people. He just went on and on in the things he, I watched him do. He was just an extrovert completely. Then when the season started, they took Chuck up there to Chicago and left Fondy back in the Pacific Coast. And then about two months into the season, they flipped it. They brought Fondy up to Chicago and he sent Connors down to Los Angeles, which was the best thing in the world for him because he, he got in with the movie people and became a movie star. And I've bumped into him a couple of times over the years and we just had some talks about old times. But we were in the dressing room one day for an old timers game and I, I was sitting down and he came up and just said hello. By the time I got my uniform, he turned around on me oh, and he said, oh, Randy, how you doing? He recognized me in the uniform, but not uh, with my clothes on. He was, he's one of the guys that you just like to be around because he's liable to do anything. Well, you weren't managed by the real Ty Cobb, but you were managed by the real Frankie Frisch Hall of Famer. And this was when you started your career with the Cubs. He actually compared you to Rogers Hornsby. So I want to ask you about him in, during spring training because – I heard it wasn't real fun to have Frankie Frisch at that time. What was that like? Well, you know, all these old-timers, and, and Rogers Hornsby was our batting coach, too. So I had Hornsby and Frisch. And, again, I, you know, I had not heard of these guys. I was just a dub-dub because I never followed uh, the old-time baseball. But Frisch was the old-time manager who expected everybody to do exactly the right thing. And if he didn't do it, he would tell you. I mean, he'd walk up and down the dugout and call you blank and blank uh, minor leaguers. That's what we were, little leaguers. He called us little leaguers. And here we were, we're supposed to be major league ball players, but he called us little leaguers. I ran from first to third one day, and he just jumped out on me and said, you ran like a, like a turtle. A couple of days later, I ran from first to third again. He was coaching third, and I got up and I looked at him. I said, Frankie. Yes, I said, that was the fastest damn turtle you ever saw. And he laughed and patted me <laughs> on the back. But he was just, he was a hard guy to get to know. And uh, Roger Hornsby never said doodly squat. 
to me the whole year. If he didn't say anything to me, I figured that must be pretty good because <laughs> he was supposed to be the hitting coach. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember there was a story I thought about uh, having to chase wild boars or wild hogs or something like that? We trained at Catalina Island the first four or five years I was with the Cubs because Mr. Wrigley owned Catalina Island, and so that was cheaper for him for us to just uh, go out there and and have spring training out there. And they had wild boars up in the mountains. Catalina Island is kind of mountainous. Some guy got the idea that he'd come out a week early and we walked the pass of the of the wild goats that uh, we'd get our legs in shape. Well, at the end of a week, all of us were lying on the beds. We could not walk at all because our legs were so sore. We all had shin splints. So that was not a good idea. You played with uh, Mr. Cub, uh, let's play two, Ernie Banks, who yeah. unfortunately passed away last year in 2015. Again, one of the, the legends of baseball. When he first came up, he was a tall, rangy guy. It took me about a week to realize that uh, the Cubs had something. After about a couple of weeks of playing alongside Ernie and watch, watching his range and everything, I called him aside and I said, Ernie, I, you know, I got something to tell you. I said, here's the way it's going to work. I'm going to play third base, and I'm going to stand right by the third base line, and you're going to take everything between me and second base. And he said, okay. And of course, he knew I was teasing because that's a big a big amount of territory. But he was so good, and he had such a great attitude. He was just a, a happy-go-lucky guy. I wish he could have been around longer, but uh, we've lost quite a few. I, I don't have, think I have many left. In 54 and 55, you played in back-to-back All-Star games for the Cubs. In that first one, there were 14 future Hall of Famers. What was it like to walk in that dugout with guys like Mays and Musial and Mantle, Duke Snyder, Warren Spahn, Ted Williams? Was all They were all there. Well, here again, you know, I'm just uh, <laughs> just a dum-dum, I guess. I, it, I, I didn't consider it just another game. I was probably as much as all as anybody because, uh, you know, I played against – most of these guys, the guys, of course, in the American League, I had not played against, but they were in, of course, in different. Uh, I got to meet all of them, but uh, I think just to be around them. I was such an admirer of Ted Williams, but never got to see him play until I went to Cleveland and sat in the dugout and watched him take batting practice at uh, Fenway Park. These guys that I'd heard of by that time, I'd heard of, and uh, I'd never got to see him play much. It was quite an honor for me. And then after that, 56, you get traded to the Dodgers from the Cubs. But the third baseman in Brooklyn was this guy named Jackie Robinson. What was it like to go to Brooklyn knowing you're going to compete for Jackie for a position? I just finished two straight seasons. Well, three seasons, I guess, of 17, 20, and 21 home runs and two all-star games. Led the league probably and put out success. So I thought I, I was pretty much settled and ready. Field. I spent the winter up there. I don't know why that uh, in 50, 55. And a sports writer called me one night in December and he says, uh, You've been traded. I said, Where? I thought I was king in Chicago. And he said, No, you've been traded for three guys. I said, Well, where? He said, Well, guess. I said, Don't do that to me. <laughs> and so I started from the bottom. I said, Pittsburgh. Uh, Cincinnati, these were the teams that were always below the Cubs. He said, no, you've been traded to the Dodgers. I said, you have, you are out of your gourd. The Dodgers had just won the World Series. I had always, of course, I think every ball player wants to play in the in the 
uh, All-Star Game and the World Series, and I knew that I'd never get a chance with Chicago. Hopefully they get it this year. But getting uh, traded to a team that had a chance to go to the World Series was just phenomenal for me. And I didn't think about, you know, me uh, being in competition with Jackie. I didn't even know it was going to his last year. But I got over there, and, of course, all the guys were just great people. And Jackie was great, great guy. And, of course, the sports writers were always looking for something. He always called to me and said, well, what's going on with you and Jackie? I said, well, we're doing great, great fine. The manager, Walter Alston, let me play half the time and Jackie play half the time. And then the day before the season started, Alston called me in. He says, I'm going to start Jackie. And I said, that's fine. He says, he's been here longer than you, and he's kind of an institution here. And I said, that's great, Coach, because uh, he deserves it. And so Jackie started and played about a month and a half. It didn't do too well. And then they put me in, and I was heading cleanup for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I was sitting there on cloud three or four or five or whatever. It's just hard to believe it, these guys, Pee Wee Reese and Duke Steiner were hitting in front of me, and then I was I was – Next up, and then Hodges, and then uh, Campanella, and then Ferrella. I mean, you you got you got machines hitting up there with you, and behind you, and in front of you, and the guys wanted to win too. Then I, at uh, the All Star break, I turned the porcelain knob off in a house I was renting. It broke off in my hand and my cut my thumb down to the bone. So I was out, of course, right away. And Jackie came back in and did good. And then he played most of the rest of the season in all the World Series. So it was just a bad break, but we won the uh, won the uh, pennant and, and went to the series, so I got to do that. Did you have any idea, I guess, at the time, the social significance he had? Did you have a feeling for that? What was it like to kind of be around that clubhouse while all this is going on and, and, and Jackie is and some of the other ballplayers like – Campanella, they're guys that are that are kind of setting the tone for the breakthrough of the color barrier. I assume you saw the movie 42. I did. That was back in, in uh, 47. So it was before my time. But uh, so w- what happened then was uh, was the first time I'd ever seen things like that. But by the time I got to play against Jackie in 50, it was my first year, first year I played some. Most all of that is gone. I think in all my time up there playing with Jackie that I never saw a demonstration or somebody holler at him because uh, all that had died out, thank goodness. He was just a class act, too, just to be around, from what I understand. Oh, he was was great. Of course, he was, uh, I think he graduated from college. I'm not sure, but he was about a six or seven or eight letterman at college. So many things in sports, he could do anything. Then he came came into baseball, and I would say he was the greatest all-around player I've ever played against or seen. I mean, I've seen some good ones, but uh, all-around, Jackie had to be best. And as a person to me, we got along fine. We talked a lot about various things when we were out there on third base. So to me, he was a great man. What was it like to play in Brooklyn with those fans? From everything you hear and reading The Boys of Summer, the great Roger Kahn book, it's just one of the great fan bases in the history of sports. When I was playing with Chicago and we'd go to Evans Field, uh, the way I felt, and I think most of the other guys that felt this way too, when we walked into the uh, Evans Field, we were behind one run to begin with before the game even started uh, because of the fans and because of the team. It was fun just 
just watching the people up in the stand, there was there was no telling what would go on. You know, somebody jump up and play a trumpet, or then you had the band way up in the corner, and then you had people dressed unusual, let's say. So it was it was a fun place to be. It's kind of a circus. When the guys were playing, it would quiet down, and we'd uh, win a lot of games. You went to that 56 series with Brooklyn. Before the series starts, you get to shake hands with President Eisenhower, and then you and your teammates were on the Ed Sullivan Show along with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. That, that had to be some experience. There's not many people running around uh, Athens, Georgia, who shook hands with, uh, <laughs> with uh, either one of those. Somebody happened to take a picture of us lined up in front of the dugout uh, shaking hands with President Eisenhower. Raw Campanella just finished shaking hands, and I was extending my hand, and somebody took a picture and uh, sent it to me. I sent it to the president, and I got a letter back with a nice note from his secretary, and he signed the, the picture, and I, I have that framed, and I will treasure that forever. You were on the uh, Brooklyn bitch the day that Don Larson threw the perfect game in the 56 World Series. And you even describe in the book just how unusual that was with all the great pitchers in the series that, that Don Larson would even throw the, the perfect game. But with two outs in the ninth, your manager was either going to pinch hit with you or Del Mitchell. Can you pick up the story from there? Don Larson was not a great pitcher. I mean, he's a good pitcher, but uh, we could not believe that uh, this was going on. And you, you you realize this about the sixth inning. He had a perfect game, and you, you just shake it off because you know that he's not going to – somebody's going to get a hit, a blue pit or something. But then you got to get into the ninth, and, you know, he gets, he gets sweaty, not because of the perfect game, but – but I think primarily because you're going to lose a game in the World Series. It's just one of those days, and it was just his day. I figured that I would not be the – probably not be the pinch hitter because uh, Dale Mitchell was a left-hander. But you never know. Sometimes uh, managers change it around. I had a bat in my hand, but uh, I never did get to swing it. Of course, if, if I had gotten up there, that would just ruin the, wor- the World Series, ruin the perfect game. That would have been a shame. <laughs> You would have messed the whole thing up. Mitchell. Yeah, I would have. <laughs> Mitchell struck out 119 times in 4,358 plate appearances, which is unbelievable. So he was the hardest guy to strike out. And then Larson strikes him out to end the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it just happened. <laughs> but I was there. I could say that. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. This strikes ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. Also, Yogi was catching that game, and every baseball fan remembers Yogi jumping into Larson's arms after the last oh, pitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell the story about Yogi and the butterfly. You tell that one in the book. Oh, yeah. We were playing an exhibition game in Phoenix. I was the next hitter, whoever it was. He had a fly ball down the right field line, and the right fielder caught it, and Yogi threw off his mask and started running down the third base line, you know, opposite sides. And I walked up to the plate, and he was just giggling. And I said, Yogi, what happened? He says, well, I was looking for the ball, and I looked up there, and I thought I saw it, but it turned out to be a butterfly. So he was chasing a butterfly down third baseline where the ball was going out in the right field. <laughs> and that's that's the story between me and Yogi. Well, during the offseason with the Dodgers, you, you get to room with Don Drysdale on a, on a baseball tour of Japan. Before I 
talk to you about that tour in Japan. Tell us about that year because you had a young John Drysdale and a young Sandy Koufax. What was it like to see those guys at the very start? Well, I, I never had seen guys throw so hard, really, with the Cubs. Sometimes I just just stay back and watch them, but when. When either one of them was throwing batting practice, I'd just forego batting practice and go out in the outfield and run or play catch because I didn't want to face either one of them. And I'd go up and I'd watch them pitch against other teams, and I just kind of felt sorry for the guys on the other team because not only did they throw hard, but they throw a little bit on the wild side because everybody that went up there was hanging loose. But they, it turned out uh, they both were great great people they had great careers and i got the room with don quite a bit and i was lucky lucky to do that i want to go back to that japan tour now and you had this unforgettable conversation with a bellman and a receptionist at your hotel which was in hiroshima this was 11 years after america dropped the nuclear bomb on hiroshima this is one of the great stories I've ever heard. Can you can you tell that one? Sure. We played uh, the candy company in the, Ameri- in the United States Department or something. Put together a, a trip for the Yankees to go over and play 20 games with the Japanese. Kind of a goodwill thing. And it, it was great going over there. Of course, Jap- Japan's made up of four islands. And we would go from city to city. And we have confetti all over the place. And Of course, the ballparks were completely full. We just had so much fun. And we came in one night to Hiroshima. The manager, Walter Austin, told us all before we landed, said, uh, you know, they still have some, some pretty mad people, some upset people in Hiroshima. So if you're going to go out, you know, go out in twos or threes. Don't just wander around by yourself. Don and I, of course, we were roommates. We didn't have anything to do. You know, they didn't have any TV or anything. So we just sitting down in the lobby just for something to do. And they had a bellhop and a girl behind the desk. I thought, well, I've got, I've got, just got, got, got to find an answer. So I walked over, and both of them were together, standing there. And I said, "Can I ask you all a question?" They said, "Sure." They spoke good English. And I said, "Where were you?" They looked like they were about in their early twenties. I said, "Where were you when the bomb fell about eleven years ago?" And they said, "Well, the Americans flew over a couple of weeks before they dropped the bomb and dropped leaflets, and said something terrible was going to happen." to go up into the mountains. We went up into the mountains, and we were saved, along with many, many thousands of people who did the same thing. And I said, well, I did not know that. I swore to myself right there that every speech I would make for the rest of my life, I would tell that story, because I think it deserves to be in the history books. It's not in there. I had two history teachers in the last few years that came over to the house. I told them that story. They said, well, we tell the story. Well, we we, t- we tell that story. And then I was making a speech at Augusta, and they had about 25 old servicemen there. And after I made the speech and told the story, this guy who must have been in his 80s came up to me. He was about five foot six. He said he had tears in his eyes. And he said, uh, thank you so much for telling that story. He said, I was one of the gunners on that plane that dropped those leaflets. And he says, I don't hear that story very often. I said, well, I promise you this, that wherever I go and wherever I talk, I will tell that story. And I have. So glad you did, because that's fantastic to hear. You hit the last Brooklyn Dodger home run late in the 57 season. You were there for the last game at Ebbets Field. What was that like? In the book, you talk about Gladys Gooding, who played the Hammond organ for many years at the ballpark. She she wasn't... Uh... Wasn't happy. <laughs> <laughs> she was not happy. 
<laughs> well, you know, the last home run uh, for the Brooklyn Dodgers I hit in Philadelphia, and I did not know. You know, the, I've had a bunch of records that I don't even know or found out about until many, many years later. And my son, one day, uh, 30 years later, 25 years later, the telephone rang at 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, it was my son who was in Columbus, Georgia. And he says, Dad, you were on Good Morning America. And I said, what? He said, yeah, well, you were on Good Morning America. They asked a question for the people. Then they, they, they asked who was the last Brooklyn Dodger to hit her home run. Then they went to a commercial, and they came back and said, Ransom Jackson. I said, I did not know that. So that's how I found out that I hit the last home run, Brooklyn Dodgers. Getting back to Gladys. <laughs> yeah, this Gladys thing is pretty funny. This is this is what it is to be a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Gladys Gooding, tell that story. I think you're talking about the song she played the last day. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's, there's a long list of the book. You make you cry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think she was probably crying while she was playing them. And you got to understand it. She was a great organist, and she just played these songs, different songs, all during the game. But when it got to the last game of the season, she sang these, I don't know whether it was some of them like Good Night, Irene. There were so many songs that all they were saying was goodbye, I'll see you around, and it was really fun. Probably wasn't popular with the ownership. Didn't she lock herself in there so they wouldn't? <laughs> I think she did. She locked herself in 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 where she played the organ and they had a hard time getting her out. She was I believe I'd heard that she had a little help there in her pocketbook, uh in in a bottle. <laughs> what when you looked up in the stands that day, were, were, did you see anybody with tears or anything like that? Or did I mean what was the what was the kind of feeling at the ballpark that day? What could you tell? Well, you know, it was all a surprise to me. You know, I didn't know anything about it. I'm not sure whether all the you know, the big boys like the, Big players like Reese and all those guys do anything about it, but shoot, I didn't know anything until a long time later. It was kind of a secret, but it turned out to be a great thing for the Dodgers financially. He almost had to have somebody out, had, had to have at least two teams on the coast. It was a great move for both of them. After Brooklyn, you go to Cleveland and play with the Indians in 58 and 59. One of your teammates, Minnie Minosa, who was between stints with the White Sox, he was one of the game's great characters. He once showered with his clothes on to try to break a slump. That's one of the stories <laughs> we know about Minosa. What, what are your memories of playing with the Cuban Comet? When he got out of the field, he'd run out on the field to his position. And when he got out there, he was just, he was just moving all the time. He was going to do good. Uh, he was just a, a hard-working player, you know, like, you now me, I was kind of not happy-go-lucky, but I guess I was accused of being lack, lackadaisical, I think somebody used that, but I really wasn't. I was just had my mind on the game, I was concentrating on the game and wasn't jumping up and down. But Minoso was just, I mean, he'd run into a brick wall with no problem. He was just, he was, he was a great ball player. Is he a Hall of Famer, do you think? I would think so. You know, I have, you know I'd have to look at his records, but, uh, the way he played the game uh, and the things he did, I would think so. Uh, you know, these guys, you get out quite a while and you kind of lose track of them like Gil Hodges, who should have been Hall of Fame. He's got a better record than half the guys in the Hall of Fame. But as you go along and as you come up and you don't get it and you come up another year, couple of years later and you don't get it, well, you get less and less votes as you go, go along. And you get the young sports writers nowadays who haven't heard of you because you've been gone for 40 years, and then you might as well forget about it. Yeah, those are two guys you mentioned, both of them, Hodges and then Minoso. 
Both of them trying to get into the Hall of Fame. Some people are kind of wondering why that they haven't got in. Ransom, I wanted to ask you about like, broadcasting because you have a, a little bit about it in the book. And you mentioned Joe Garagiola, who unfortunately, again, another one who passed away uh, earlier this year. Uh, just what is, is your feeling on broadcasting and baseball broadcasting? And who are some of your favorite announcers? Vince Scully was absolutely my favorite. I know he's having a hard time now, which I, I really wish him well. I had so many good Cubs announcers. I think everyone I've ever met were good guys. You're not around them a whole lot, but they do travel with you. That's when you see them. Of course, they're up in the press box during the game. You don't see them much of them, but you see quite a bit of them. Uh, when you travel and go on the road and, you know, to sit down with them in the uh, lobby or whatever, just they've all been great. You told me before we started that you are now the 66th oldest ball pl- living ball player. Yay, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> You're still hanging in. The 50s were this golden era considered by a lot of the baseball fans a golden era of baseball. Did you feel that when you were there? Do you think it was looking back now? You played for two of the great franchises in baseball history, the Cubs and the Dodgers, two of the great ballparks in baseball history in Ebbets Field and Wrigley Field. What do you feel about that era as you look back? The biggest thing, I assume it. And balls and strikes are the same. They were different. The American League and the National League balls and strikes were different. I mean, as far as what the umpires called, umpires in the American League called a higher strike than the National League because I played in both leagues. I could tell that right away. The biggest thing, I think, today, and we're just talking about uh, the game itself, is you've got the instant replay, of course. That makes a big difference. Where back in my day, you just had the umpires. You had to accept what they said. But I think the money, the money is the big thing nowadays. Everybody on that roster is making at least $560,000. And I don't care whether you go down and play for uh, a little team down in South Georgia. If you were on the major league roster, you're making at least that. Uh, in my day, uh, you want to guess? I'd say a few, <laughs> a, 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 a few thousand. <laughs> 21. No, it was six. It was six, $6 huh? $6,000 compared to... Uh, 560 today. Uh, and the most I ever made, even after two years in uh, All Star and leading the league and a bunch of other things, was uh, $21,000. And even with inflation, 6000 or 21000 is not worth a million dollars now, right? <laughs> oh, God. No, I mean, but, but we, we, made it, we made it work over the hey, it's, year. It's what Charles Barkley always said, right? My mama had me at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you know, sometimes when I see these guys making more in one game than I made uh, in the whole season, I kind of am jealous. But what can I do about it? Well, the book is called Handsome Ransom Jackson, Accidental Big Leaguer, written by Galen White. Pleasure to talk to you about all of this. And I'm a big fan. A hero for me is Jackie Robinson. So it's great to always talk to somebody that, that knew him and all these incredible figures that we know in baseball history, the Ernie Bankses and and uh, Minnie Minosos and Pee Wee Reese's and guys like that. So, so, so much fun to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, it's just a fun book. You know, it's not going to put you safe to beach book. And, <laughs> but uh, about 90% of these guys are no longer around. And I wanted to keep these stories alive. And Galen helped me do it. He's a great writer. He just took my, all out my scribbling and turned it into a really good book. So I, I appreciate you calling me about this. I surely enjoy talking to you about it. Thanks again, and one more time, you can check that book out on Amazon.com. It's by Galen White. 
We'll have a link on our website, HoustonSportsTalk.net, where you can find the book, and we'll link up to it there. For more interviews, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, or if you're an Android user, download our free Houston Sports Talk app in the Google Play Store. We're also available on Stitcher or the TuneIn app, and our website is HoustonSportsTalk.net.